Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash British Murders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. You are now listening to British Bears, the True Crime Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. My name is Stuart Blues and I will be your host and this week I have a very special guest coming on to tell you and I a lovely story from Borny, Scotland. I have Dawn here from Scottish Murders. Welcome Dawn. Thank you. One of the most requested things I have from my listeners is... Stuart, you don't cover enough Scottish cases. Cover a case in Scotland, Stuart. Well, (laughs) I've got someone from Scotland who does a show dedicated to Scotland murder cases to come on and tell you a Scottish murder story. So that's why I've brought you one. Do you want to tell my audience a little bit about Scottish murders? Yep, Scottish murders focuses completely on murders that have been carried out in Scotland or of Scottish people who live abroad. That's basically what it is in a nutshell. So you do cases if you've got Scottish people, but they committed a crime in Switzerland, let's say. You would do that as well. Well, it's more I'm more interested in the victims than the murderers. So I always okay. try and focus around the victims. So it would be if victims lived abroad and they were murdered rather than the murderers. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, it's a fine line to sort of toe, isn't it? Because a lot of my, especially earlier episodes, are named after the killer. Often if it's a serial killer as well as... Frustratingly, people don't know the victims, which is really sad. So it's good that you do it that way, I think. Well, I've just done one that was, it was a lot of, it was basically Angus Sinclair. I don't know, he was a serial killer in Scotland. And, mm-hmm. you know, obviously you have to tell a bit about them, but I didn't want to make that the title. So I had to yeah. think of another title because it was about the murderers that may or may not have been done by him. Murderers that may have been not. How do you find, just from a marketing perspective, and this is off topic a little bit, but do you find that, naming episodes after victims affects traffic to your episodes because it is quite sad that it might i think it possibly could well i'm not sure about that actually i I don't i'm not sure um i tend to most of them are named after the victims the ones i've done unless i'm grouping a few together Hmm. so i'm I'm not sure about that Stuart. to be fair (laughs) i might have to look at my stats (laughs) (laughs) what's your favorite place I don't want to say to cover murders in Scotland, that's a bit of a morbid question, but what to you is the most picturesque, the most beautiful place in Scotland? Not just that you've visited, could be where you live, but 
in general, what's the consensus up there? Is is it the Highlands? Is it the the Shetland Islands? Well, I would say the Highlands because that's you know where I spent a lot of my childhood was up in Skye. So for me, that is the most beautiful place in the world. You can't beat that. Although I haven't travelled the world, but <laughs> in my opinion, so for me, yes, up there definitely. Skye's a that's a little island, right? Skye. Isle of Sky. It is an Isle of Sky. There's a bridge to it now. It used to be only oh, okay. accessed via a boat. There's a bridge. <laughs> you don't, you don't have to swim moving there. on. More <laughs> no, you don't know how to swim. <laughs> I think my parents went up there recently. They brought me back Did some they? beer from local brewery up there. I think it's Isle of Sky Brewery, I think. Oh, I probably. They're, it's popular, the breweries. Yeah. They're not a sponsor, but if you listen to this, feel free to send me a beer. You do like your beer, don't you? <laughs> I enjoy beer. I absolutely do. I just like alcohol. I'm, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not in denial. Get that in quick. <laughs> <laughs> so as I said at the start of the episode, Dawn has come on very kindly to give up her time to tell you and I a story from Scotland. And I'm excited to hear it. I don't know the context. I don't know who it's about. So don't know anything about it. Nothing at all. No prep work on this. I will say, first of all, that um, I did actually do this podcast with my sister to begin with. It was the pair of us. But um, you're just getting me. She's kind of step, taking a step back. So it's me okay. from now on. So Fair enough. You, you just have to enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. I kind of think of Scottish murders unofficially as like the British murders sister show. I do too. I love that. The little sister, because <laughs> you're obviously a giant. Okay. So <laughs> I take that's, that. That's fine. <laughs> so I think that's pretty cool. So if, if anyone thinks that I cover more English cases, I do cover the odd Scottish one. But basically, I'm kind of reliant on whatever my listeners request, and most of them are English ones. If you want to listen to purely Scottish ones, guys, please check out Scottish Murders. Give them a like, subscribe, leave a review, all that good stuff. The engagement always helps. It's a great show. It's always appreciated. Exactly. But I'm ready to go whenever you are, Dawn, if you want to tell the tale of Scottish murders. Okay, so the case I'm going to talk about today, I actually covered in my podcast in July last year. It was our second episode that I released. I'm choosing to do this episode because it remains unsolved. And I know that's not always a popular, you know, people do prefer them solved. But for me, you know, they're just as, you know, they need to be solved. Um, There haven't been new developments, sadly, but there are some updates. So I thought it'd be a perfect time to just share this one with your listeners. Perfect. Okay, so the murder took place in Aberdeen which is in the northeast of Scotland, in September 1983, and it's the murder of 58-year-old George Murdoch. So just a little bit of background. Um, George was happily married to his wife, Jessie, for 37 years. Um, They married when George was 21. Um, Jessie and George, they loved animals. Um, They were devoted to their nieces and nephews. They saw their their next-door neighbours' children as their, their grandchildren. So they had so much love to give. They were loving and caring, and they were content with their life. They were looking forward to growing old together. That was what oh. got from that. I know. That's a nice cute. thought, isn't it? It's cute, that, isn't yeah. it? George, a little bit about George. He kept pigeons. However, the pigeons weren't fond of returning home, um, which was a joke down at the local pub where the pair enjoyed a weekly night out. So it was a bit a bit of a laugh. <laughs> so that's just a little bit of a brief outline about the couple. But if you want to know more... Um, about the couple's life, I read a book called The Last Fair, which was written by George's nephew's wife, who I'm in contact with. So it was really nice reading that when I got like reading that book. I got a lot from it, and it made me see George as a person rather than just a victim. Yeah. 
So that was quite a good book. So the story is this. In September 1983, George was a taxi driver. He'd been made redundant from his previous job, so he'd just taken up this job. Um, Jessie wasn't keen on George's new job because she was worried about him you know, being robbed or being attacked or something. But George said, you know, don't worry about it. If I get robbed or somebody wants to rob me, I'll just give them the money. I'm not going to put up a fight, so don't don't worry. So it was on Thursday the 29th of September, 1983, and George was out working in the taxi. And it was a busy night because it was Thursday and it's late night shopping in Aberdeen on Thursdays. So he'd been busy all day and it was coming to the near the end of his shift. Um, it was about eight o'clock. Um, and about 20 minutes later, he was just driving about the streets and looking for, you know, people to pick up. And a young man waved him down and he said he got into the taxi and he sat behind George and he said he wanted to go to Peter Cooter, which was about six miles away. So George, he radioed this in and began the journey. But only two miles into the journey, George pulled into Pitfordell's Station Road, presumably because the passenger had asked him to for some reason. And this road, it's a quiet road, it's dimly lit. And at that point was when the passenger sitting behind George put a cheese wire around his neck and pulled it. Jeez. I know. How scary is that? I mean, somebody getting into the taxi sitting behind you anyway, I wouldn't like that myself. I'd be like... Sit in the front. say you're supposed to do that and not sit in the front, ironically, for safety really? reasons. Yeah, yeah. Sit behind the driver? Well, not behind the driver, but in the back seat. Oh, I don't know whether I would like that, somebody sitting behind me breathing down my neck. <laughs> but I think I don't think I would have expected a cheese wire around my neck. Yeah. So anyway, somehow, he managed. George managed to get the cheese wire away from his neck and he got out of the taxi, but the passenger immediately was on top of him and started strangling him on the ground. And George slipped into unconsciousness. At that point, the passenger he took his wallet, took George's wallet, and whatever little money he had in the taxi, and he ran away. But there was, while they were, the pair were on the ground and George was being strangled, there were two young boys passing on their bike, teenagers. But they, you know, they saw what was happening and they went to phone the police. Obviously, no mobile phones back in 1983. It must have been a bit of a surprise, a bit of a shock seeing that going on. But luckily, there was a dog handler doing some training exercises nearby. So when the boys phoned the police, they quickly radioed this dog handler. And he arrived on the scene quickly, but not quickly enough. And sadly, George died at the scene. But the dog handler was with him, you know, holding holding his hand and just there for him. Yeah. And he was 58 years old, George was. So that was quite sad. Such a <laughs> needless death, isn't it? Yeah, awful. And I said, just why? You know, why? Was it was it just robbery? Because, you know, ironically, he'd said they could have had the money. Well, this is it. I mean, cheese wire is bloody sharp. Mm-hmm. And if you're strangling someone with it just for money, like, was your intent to kill them and rob them? Well, yes, it was your intent to kill somebody that night. I mean, why are you w- walking about with a cheese wire in the first place? No one has that in the pocket, do they? Yeah, just, just yeah. Unless you're going to do something, unless you're well, planning yeah. on doing something. So I don't know whether it was just out that night to do something, and George was the unlucky one. I don't know. So anyway, the piece of the um, dog handler was called PC Allen Hendry, and when the you know the the bosses, his bosses turned up, the detectives turned up. They told him to take his dog and to go to Peter Cooter, which was you know the destination where um, the passenger had asked George to take him. And to walk back towards Pitfordle Station Road, going along the old railway line, and he, he never, him and his dog never found anything or anyone while he did that. 
And at the time, and years later, as PC Alan Henry's come back and said, he doesn't know why his boss has told him to go another four miles along the road and walk back when apparently there was a large area of ground in the field behind an embankment right on the edge of the Pitfordville Station Road. And he felt that that would have been a better area to search, maybe rather than sending them miles away and walking back. And he said that he actually went there the following day, took his dog there into this big area the following day, and he found what appeared to have been an area where somebody was lying. Okay. I mean, would it could have been anybody just having a nosy, and it was a wet, really wet night that night, so why anybody would be staying there and have, lying there, I don't know. And surely if you just murdered somebody, you're not going to be staying, you know, lying close by to see what happens. I mean, I don't no, know. You wouldn't have a, a kip in the next field would you no i don't know so i don't i don't know so there's that but he always thought i know there was something he wasn't happy about the investigation and being sent so far away but that was a bone of contention for years so there was also other witnesses to what had happened that night a couple had seen a man running not leaving not running away from the scene but running close to it shortly after the young boys on the bikes had seen what had happened they said he was thin, about five foot seven inches, about maybe late twenties to early thirties, with short, dark, well groomed hair that sat over his ears. And then another witness reported seeing a man matched that same description description about five minutes later running towards Aberdeen. So this next bit is a bit strange. It was three weeks after George's murder um had happened that staff in a chip shop about a mile away from the murder scene, they came forward three weeks later, and said that about 15 minutes after the murder had taken place, a man matching the same description as the other witnesses had come into the shop and ordered fish and chips. <laughs> they, said that, no, they said that this man had blood dripping from his hand, scratches on his cheek and nose, and a bruise developing under one of his eyes. They said they didn't come forward for three weeks because they didn't connect it. <laughs> they didn't they connect wouldn't be getting this. served in my chip shop, I no. can tell you that for free. <laughs> And and I don't think it's not believed that this actually was George's killer because why would you, you've murdered somebody and think oh I know what I'll do <laughs> I'll nip into the nearest fish shop and get some fish and chips I just mm. not a lot of weights put behind that but why it took them three weeks to come forward and there was a customers in and six other customers in the chip shop and only one of them came forward with any information. It was apparently it was difficult to get people to come forward. They were really struggling. Nobody was wanting to talk. Do you think that's partly down to not only society at the time, but also the lack of stuff like mobile phones and social media? Like if you wanted to report something, you'd have to either wait till you got home or find a payphone, find some change. Do you think people just like couldn't be bothered? Possibly, yeah. Didn't want to get involved, maybe. Yeah. Or maybe they knew the person that was in the chip shop then. I don't know. But yeah, for some reason, nobody, they were really struggling to get people to speak. Um, they did end up going to 10,000 homes and talk, taking 8,000 statements, but it just didn't get them anywhere. Nobody was speaking. Really mm. hard, re- reluctant. So after that, they, the police also they think the thought that because he was using a cheese wire, he's bound to have a, had some injury to his hands. So... There was a local football match going on at this local stadium, 
it wasn't a local one, it was a big football match actually going on at the local stadium. And what they did was they checked, they went in, and when you go through, I don't know, I've never been to a football match, but you go through the turnstiles mm-hmm. and the police were waiting there for them. So by the time they got in, you know, the time they were through there, they couldn't get back out. And they were checking everybody's hands to look for wounds. Um, but it turned out that they were surprised at how many people had wounds on their hands. <laughs> yeah, that seems like a pretty flawed yeah. uh, method of finding a killer. <laughs> but they had to, they checked out all the, they took the details and how you got the marks on your hands and they checked it all out and it led absolutely nowhere as well. <laughs> the story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. But the cheese wire, so that was another line of inquiry that they looked down. It was who, around that time, what jobs were using cheese wires? So obviously they were going to interview these people as well. So it was obviously used for cutting cheese. It was also used by oil workers for cutting core samples, um, by pottery makers. Mm -hmm. The fish industry used it. It was also used for removing windscreens from vehicles and for cutting through horns of cattle. So after investigating all that, it again, led nowhere. But the family, that's one line of inquiry that they've been you know, trying to focus on a lot over the years, is do your listeners, or does anybody out there listening, know of any other use for a cheese wire back in 1983, in Aberdeen at least? Mm. And honestly, the family are really keen. That's something they're really keen to find out. They've exhausted that area, but... You know, this man had it, so... Is cheese wire similar to piano wire? Yes, I suppose it is. It's that, yeah, very thin, and yes, I know what you mean. Because where would the... Could it not be used for some kind of instrument, you know, like the keys on a piano or a repair person? Maybe it could have been a makeshift one who made it up himself. It could have been, Stuart. Oh, I mentioned that. Could it have been a guitar string? That's actually a good point. I'm going to mention that to um, Rabina. I'm in touch with... George's nephew's wife yeah. is Rabina, so yeah, I'll mention that to her. That's a good one. Could have been a musician. Hey. respect, possibly. I wonder. Well, if anybody else has any ideas, the family have a Facebook page. Cool. I'll link that in the uh, description. Yeah, that would be great. I'll put that. I'll give you the link for that. But um, there's also other links on my website, scottishmurders.com as well. There's links to that and other updates that over the over the years, if you're interested. So, um, George's family, they've made many appeals over the years, with the most recent being in September 2021, which was the 38th anniversary of George's murder. Um, at that point, the reward was doubled to £20,000. George's murder will now be in his late 60s to early 70s, if he's still alive. He could be living locally still, or he could have relocated, just not known. But, you know, if anybody knows anything, this is what this one's about. Just if you know anything at all, if you heard anything, if you family that lived there at the time, George's family would love to hear from you. Did they collect any DNA samples or any forensic evidence at the time? No. As far as I know, there's no no DNA. It's never been mentioned anywhere. Um, Rabina's never mentioned it. So as far as I know, no, there's nothing like that. Just the cheese wire that was found lying near his body. So he actually left the wire at this crime scene? Yeah, wow. he left it, yeah. So they had that, but nothing else. I don't think, I think it was still very much in his infancy, I think, wasn't it, DNA back then? I don't know whether the... Yeah, I think it was mid to late 80s when it yeah. really started being used, so... Yeah, I don't think at all, no. 
I suppose you can't leave a fingerprint on a piece of wire, can you? No. Well, it was had the wooden ends to it as well. You know okay. how you know how to hold it. It had that. that was, right. There's a picture on the website, but if you want to see that. But they still believe the detective working on the case and George's family still, you know, believe and hope that this murder can be solved. It just takes that one person to come forward. Isn't it strange how there's probably hundreds of these types of isolated murder cases that are just unsolved and the decades into it it's just baffling to think that because most times you think oh there's an unsolved case and perhaps there's two or three murders that are similar and they could potentially be grouped to one killer but isolated ones like this where there's no rhyme or reason exactly he's picked up a fair i mean the fact that you know his wife wasn't keen on the job yeah is kind of coincidental but it you know it's by the by oh yeah but to just pick up a fair and randomly be robbed. Because this is what I'm thinking about. Was the intention just to rob him or was it to kill him? Because if your intention was just to rob him and that's your weapon of choice rather than, say, a knife or a gun would be incredibly hard to access. Yeah. It's a bit of an extreme. You know, why not? Sounds daft, but why not a piece of rope or something less Violent as a hit him over the head or something. There was no need to, or a a chokehold or something. You know, exactly. He'd have given you the money. He said that himself. If he gets robbed, he was no, no, it wasn't a fighting person. He was a gentleman, and he would have handed over the money. I mean, obviously, the killer wouldn't have known that, but still, it was just so. But what money could he have got? About twenty quid. Oh yeah, not much at all. Not much at all. But the thing that is, he got. He took his wallet. You know, that's that case. It's sad that George was murdered, obviously, so brutally, and that his murderer has not been found. But also, his wife Jessie, she really suffered following his murder because the killer took George's wallet. So she was had his address in it. So Jessie, she lived in fear that the murderer was going to come, you know, right. to her home. Yeah. She and she couldn't move because there were so many memories of George. So she was she had a mm-hmm. hard time. She lived on for another twenty-one years without George, but it was she was never never the same. You know, they, they thought they were going to, you know, grow old together, and yeah. that was sad. What involvement did the police have with his wife? Did they offer any kind of protection, or was it just a case of sorry, love? There's not much we can do. No, from what I can gather from Rabina, the, the police have been amazing and they're still in contact regularly with the family now, all these oh, years good. later. Um, they still come and visit and, you know, update on the case. So from what I can gather, they were there. And I'm sh- and she had lots of family, don't get me wrong, she wasn't on her own. Um, she had lots of family around her and supporting her, but she she was she wouldn't leave. It was her choice. She wasn't going to leave the home. So. Yeah. It was, must have been tough, you know, you're scared, but you've got all these memories and it's all you've got left. Yeah, it'd be a sort of thing where you wouldn't want to, like if a child dies or, you know, you don't want to change how their room was, mm-hmm. that yeah, kind of thing. Exactly. But it, it's sad to think that these murders unsolved from decades and decades ago, you know, we're going on 40 years, it's going to get to the point where everyone in that chain is just not going to, be alive anymore that's what the family are thinking now this is like their big last push because they're you know they're getting on as well and they're thinking you know there's going to be nobody after them that mm. has that connection you know they george's nephew you know he was he got the phone call with his you know he was there when his mum got the phone call so that's the last connection to george so once they go 
you know, there's going to be nobody else doing this. So that's why they're doing the last push. That actually was featured on UK's BBC Crime Watch Live in March this year, George's okay. case. So again, there's a link on my website to that. It's on YouTube now. So there's, you know, there's lots of information out there. It's just one person. <laughs> just They're just yeah. trying their best to get it out there as much as they can, just to reach as many as they can. It's almost a, a combination of perfect factors for a killer. And this is why 70s and 80s serial killers mainly were, were rife because you've got a lack of DNA knowledge. Mm -hmm. CCTV wasn't what it is now. Social media wasn't what it is now. It didn't exist, basically. Mm -hmm. The technology was primal compared to what we have now. Yeah. It's a perfect storm of factors to do something like this and get away with it. Mm hmm and like you say, it was just that bit too early for them to even collect DNA. Mm. You know, a few years later they were collecting it, but just that wee bit too early. That. But even like <sighs> I'm sure taxis now, I don't know if they all have cameras in them. I think maybe some of the London and bigger city cabs do. Aye. You know, but even if they had a black box, like for audio recording, could have been helpful. Yep. It's just in a time where it didn't exist. It's so frustrating. But if anyone does know anything, please come forward. I'm going to put links in the episode description. Please get in touch with either myself, Dawn. The Scottish Murders website is up there, and the link to the Facebook page is also in the episode description. It's, it's just such a sad one, isn't it? I, I can't get over such a need. No murder is justified, in my opinion. Yeah. But for something so needless, oh, with no resolution and no... Closure, no yeah, closure. No closure. Yeah, they no just closure. want to know. Of course, they just want to know, but but that will not bring them back. But what what was good about this case? For, not good. I don't mean that. But the book helped me. I keep going back to the book that was written by Robina because it really made it so personal to me. And now we're in close, we're in contact all the time now. So this one's a bit more special to me as well. It's like I've kind of you know gone along in the last year or so with them. What's the book called? Remind me. It's called The Last Fear. It's oh, on the fair. website as well. Okay. How, did you, <laughs> Everything's on the website. how did you get in touch with them? She actually got in touch with me. Um, I tried okay. to find her before I did the episode, but um, she wasn't on social media. And I did the episode, and then she went onto social media and was doing the Facebook page, and she just typed in George Murdoch cases, and I was the one that came up. So she contacted me, and we've been in touch ever since. And That's amazing. Yeah. yeah, it's really, yeah. It is amazing because when you, when we write these episodes as independent podcasters, it, it's sometimes hard to connect with what you're reading as being real life. Yeah. Because it's so ludicrous and outrageous in everyday scheme of things. Yeah. You tell this story and you think, right, that's an episode done. But then what you sometimes naively forget is that there could still be family members alive out there, especially if it's unsolved. You most likely do more unsolved than me. I normally stick to ones that have a, a resolution. It's just what I prefer. Mm -hmm. But I've had messages off family members. 95% of the time, assuming the information you've put across is correct, they're happy with the exposure. And like you say, if you're the only podcast that's covered that case, yep. you're the only one they can get in contact with. Sometimes you, know, you will get families that join you and ask you to take stuff down or if it's factually incorrect. That's obviously something you have to have a discussion about. So it works both ways. But I just think that's so cool that she's reached out and, and that you're still in contact, you know, actively using your platform to try and get a resolution for them. Yeah. So thank you for letting me do this one today. It's been, you know, 
your platform is obviously a lot bigger than mine, so thank you for, for letting You're me welcome. do it. I've told her that I'm coming on, and she's, she says that's really great, and she was over the moon to be able to do a little recording for you too. Oh, bless her. Cool. So thank you. But yeah, I appreciate you coming on and telling me that story again. If anyone knows anything, please visit one of the links in the description. But it's been lovely having you on, Dawn. Please remember to check out Scottish Murders. Apart from the website, which was scottishmurders.com? That's right, yep. Where can people access you? Are you active on the old social media? I am. I'm mainly on Instagram, which is Scottish Murders Podcast, and also on Twitter, which is Scottish Murders. Scottish Murders. Yeah, I'm on Facebook too, but I don't tend to use that as much. I really need to yeah. start. <laughs> it's one of them. If you've got a big following on there, it's you're more likely to use it on Facebook. Yeah. I think Instagram and Twitter are a little bit more user-friendly, kind mm-hmm. of. But anyway, but yeah, that wraps up a very special, call this a bonus guest collaboration episode <laughs> or something, with the, the family of British and Scottish murders together at last. Yes. To do a lovely. Not lovely the last episode. time, I hope. No, it won't be. <laughs> so, hope you've all enjoyed that. Check out Scottish Murders, and next week is going to be probably, depending on when this airs, I know when this episode's going to drop. We're recording this at the end of June, by the way, and I know you're hearing this listener in probably the end of August, so two months after the recording, because I'm on holiday and I banked the episode. Next week, I think it's going to be either a normal episode or it might be a special because I think this is going to drop after the end of season six, which is what I'm on at the minute. But knowing how the schedule changes, it could be just dropped in the middle. So organised. So organised. You know what's going when. Not really. Not really. (laughs) I've got a spreadsheet, but it constantly changes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I try to do that as well. Plan a um, a few months ahead, but then you get like you, listener you know listener requests and everything Mm -hmm. gets juggled about exactly it's tough (laughs) it's tough but it's fun yeah but yeah that's it from dawn that's it from myself this has been british murders and as we always say until next time cheerio